is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything on this show, from arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories, and send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Now we're about to dig into a story about a man you all know, but you don't know as well as you should. On this day in history, in 1839, George Armstrong Custer was born. Custer was the youngest Civil War general in the Union Army. An incredibly fearless and eccentric man, he scented his hair with cinnamon oil. A man whose heroics have been reenacted time after time for the big screen and for the stage. In fact, President Ronald Reagan played him in the 1940 Western Santa Fe Trail. A year later, Errol Flynn starred as the same man in the biopic, They Died With Their Boots On. We all know Custer's name. This fascinating story will remind you why. On a desolate hillside amidst the rolling prairie of Montana, George Armstrong Custer made his last stand. Although one of the most successful military leaders in United States history, it was Custer's defeat that made him a legend and gave the American West its first true hero. Historians now cast a less glorious picture of George Custer, who is more likely referred to as a villain than as an American martyr. But one point is clear. George Custer was an exceptionally brave and effective combat leader. During America's bloody civil war, the 23-year-old Custer became the youngest and most admired general in the Union Army, with heroics that helped him win the most decisive battle at Gettysburg. Custer in a battle uh, was, was a thing of beauty. Uh, he, he could direct people with precision, uh, never get rattled. I mean, he just had a sense of physical courage uh, that was inspiring. And that's a real gift when you're out there in the chaos of war. And Custer had it. From an early age, it was clear that this Ohio boy was determined to transcend his lowly origins. His self-confidence so impressed his congressman that despite his lack of qualifications, he won a coveted spot at West Point in 1857. By the time of his graduation from West Point in 1861, Custer's insubordination helped him compile a list of infractions never before equaled in the history of the academy. Custer uh, would finish last in his class, but he wasn't stupid by any means. Whenever he was running into serious trouble, he'd hunker down and work his way back. And so, in one sense, he led a chaotic, fun-filled life, but on the other, there was a real discipline there. Although Custer was fresh out of West Point when the Civil War began, his exploits on the battlefield proved that he was more than ready for command. He never asked anyone to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. In the bloodiest war in all of American history is in the thick of the fighting from the first battle to the last battle, and he's barely scratched. It's just absolutely remarkable. Custer's luck. He called it, and he came to believe in it. Cited for bravery in his very first engagement at the Battle of Bull Run, the New York Tribune proclaimed, 
future writers of fiction will find in Brigadier General Custer most of the qualities which go to make up a first-class hero. Not only did the flamboyant Custer act the part of a hero, but he also dressed the part. It was like a, a circus rider gone mad, someone wrote. But those who at first thought this was just a showman quickly changed their mind because Custer was a fighter. His soldiers, they admired him, uh, even worshipped him. They emulated his dress and uh, his division began to sport red scarves uh, so that they could all look like Custer. Custer became known as the boy general and stayed on the very front lines until the last day of the Civil War, receiving the flag of truce when General Robert E. Lee finally surrendered at Appomattox on April 9, 1865. During the months following the surrender at Appomattox, the restless Custer found peace more challenging than war. But then in the fall of 1866, Custer received an offer to join the 7th Cavalry to protect gold miners and settlers from Sioux and Cheyenne tribes. Custer goes out to the Indian frontier. It's really the only active theater of operations. This isn't like the Confederates. The Sioux and the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, they don't know the histories of, say, Napoleon Bonaparte's armies, and they don't care. Custer camps on top of hills so that he has a view of the countryside, builds big fires. It's well the first thing that happens. The enemy sees him and goes away. Then, on August 4th, 1873, while protecting the Northern Pacific Railroad workers in Montana, Custer and his 7th Cavalry were attacked for the first time by a large band of Sioux warriors who were led by Crazy Horse and the legendary medicine man, Sitting Bull. But the young braves attacked impetuously and with little planning. Custer, who had been taking an afternoon nap, reacted quickly and mounted an effective defense. After a brief skirmish, the Indians withdrew. Custer's first encounter with Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse helped to confirm his belief that the Plains warriors tended to flee rather than fight. What he doesn't realize is he's fighting what we've come to know as a guerrilla war. It's not that he doesn't have courage to show, it's that he doesn't have a, a place to show it in because he can't find the enemy and display the courage the way he's used to. And when we come back, more on the life of George Armstrong Custer, born on this day in history in 1839. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, a terrific place to send your kids to learn all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. If you can't get to Hillsdale, though, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses, and there are tens upon tens of hours of them. If you're a homeschooling family, if you're lifelong learners, heck, if you're in college or high school or elementary school, these are required courses. They're terrific. Go to hillsdale.edu. You won't be disappointed. That's hillsdale.edu. More on the life of George Armstrong Custer after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue the story of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. The Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868 had created the Great Sioux Reservation, which encompassed most of the modern-day state of South Dakota, as well as millions of acres of hunting ground to the west and north, including the Black Hills. By the terms of the treaty, this land, which the American government viewed as worthless, had been granted to the Sioux forever. In return, they were supposed to cease hostilities against the Americans. The majority of the tribe had followed this course, but Sitting Bull remained defiant, refusing to acknowledge the treaty, let alone sign it. Then in 1874, thousands of Americans violated the treaty when a four-letter word made headlines across the country. It's uh, 1874 when the news hits the public that there's gold in the Black Hills. And this is a time of depression in the United States. And so those men who, and some women who can outfit themselves get their equipment and head to the Black Hills to mine for gold. The position of the U.S. government is that miners are going to invade that country and there's going to be a war with Indians, and that is inevitable. The white man had made a treaty with Red Cloud that said the Black Hills would be ours as long as the grass should grow and the water flow. Later, I learned that the long hair had found there much of the yellow metal that makes the white man crazy, and that is what made the bad trouble. Black Elk, 1874. Ironically, it was Custer himself who started this gold rush after leading an expedition into the sacred Sioux lands of the Black Hills and discovering the pay dirt. Custer has a great phrase. He says, we found gold among the roots of the grass. Uh, and he creates this image in that phrase that you just go there, you're a farmer, right? You're gonna just plow up the land, you're gonna plow up the land. First you dig up the gold, you put the gold in the bank, then you put your wheat in the ground. More than 15,000 miners flooded into the region, establishing the towns of Custer and Deadwood. The government offered to buy the Black Hills for $6 million, but the Sioux turned them down. Conflict was inevitable. Elements from Sitting Bull's camps come down and uh, threaten to kill any chief that touches uh, pen to paper. Finally, on November 3rd, President Ulysses S. Grant determined to eliminate this last pocket of Indian resistance in the West. Custer, now 36, was the natural choice to lead such an operation. His mission was to force Sitting Bull and his resistance onto the reservation or destroy them in the process. Putting Custer in charge of this operation showed that the American government meant business. Gentlemen, I want each of your men to carry 100 rounds of carbine, 24 rounds of pistol ammunition, rations, 15 days per man, Artac, coffee, sugar, 12 days of bacon, and another 50 rounds of ammunition per man on a mule train. Any questions? Sir, 
15-day supplies without wagons? Chasing Indians, Colonel. Not cattle. Gotta be quick, gotta be mobile. Wagons will slow us right down. Do not hold me back. I will not have a single Indian say that he escaped the 7th Gavalry. Mark Kellogg, a small-town reporter for the Bismarck Tribune, was the only reporter on Custer's last campaign. His dispatches will be reprinted in the New York Herald. President Grant forbids the Army from taking reporters with them, but Custer knows the value of publicity. Sir. General. We'll talk in the morning, Mr. Kellogg. Some of the officers seem unhappy. Repeat that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Is that what you're going to tell your readers, Mr. Kellogg? I'd like to hear your side, sir. Sit down. You want to catch Indians, you have to travel as they do. This is their country. They know it better. Tell your readers this. Seventh Cavalry's gonna get them. Mr. Kellogg, we're going to war. We're not fighting white men. It's not Union and Confederates. For us, warfare has rules, not for the Indians. Tell you what's worse than how they fight. Oh, they don't fight. The Indian feels no dishonor at running away. First sign of trouble, they'll scatter. Damn Redskins. Only good Indian is a dead Indian. That's a common view, Mr. Kellogg, and if you'll pardon me, plain stupid. If I was an Indian, I'd rather live on the open plains than submit to the confines of a reservation. Not that you readers want to read that either. My orders are clear, Mr. Kellogg. The Indians are to be subdued and driven back to their reservation. You're taking a lot of ammunition. <laughs> we may need it. You can print that. Custer had a kind of a tortured relationship uh, with Native peoples. He identified with them very strongly, uh, prided himself in his knowledge of their rituals and, and lifestyle. And so that, you know, at one point he's embracing them and in many ways imitating them. But on the other side, he was part of white civilization and saw them as a primitive race that were uh, going to eventually melt into the shadows. Custer and his 7th Cavalry are also joined by a company of Indian scouts, mostly Crow and Arikara, who as lifelong enemies of the Sioux, allied themselves with the Americans. But in response to a plea from Sitting Bull, the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes will join the Sioux in their fight. Within a week or so prior to the Battle of Little Bighorn, many more of these reservation Indians were pouring into Sitting Bull's camps. This number swelled to probably 1,500 to perhaps as many as 2,000 warriors by June 25th seven to eight thousand individuals altogether. Sitting Bull has amassed the greatest gathering of Indians on the northern plains in its history. He sees it as his last stand against white encroachment. For Sitting Bull's people, there's no place to run. There's no place to go. This is it. Shortly after dawn on June 25th, 1876, Custer ascends to an overlook called the Crow's Nest 
near the Little Bighorn River in Montana. They cannot see the village directly because the terrain is very deceptive. But in the valley of the Little Bighorn, uh, they can see arising a huge cloud of, of smoke. The Crows were the first ones to recognize the fact that there was, they said there was more Indians there than, 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 the, than the military had bullets. It was clear as a stream at sunrise. Well, I said it's as good as anyone. I can't see anything. It's a big village. No Indians, nothing. Look for the wriggling worms. Worms? That'll be the pony herd. <sighs> Sir, if you don't find more Indians in that valley than you ever saw, you can hang me. It'd be a damn sight of good hanging you, wouldn't it? Today we rest up. Tonight we surround them. At daybreak, we attack. Play cute. Play cute. Waste. Aik Isla. He says if you must attack, it has to be today. Today, under cover, we rest. Tomorrow, they don't know what hit him. Well, then tomorrow we're gonna have one big fight. That is my plan. Sir. Pack fell off one of the mules. I know. We sent some men to pick him up. They found it, sir. A mile or so back. There were two Indians by it. I trust they were dealt with? They got away, sir. Which direction? Get back to your men. Gentlemen, this guy's assuring me that the Indians are very close. How many, it's hard to say. But our presence has quite possibly been discovered. We have no choice but to launch our attack today. Today, sir. The men need rest. Horses, too. If we so delay him one more day, that whole village could scatter. Hell, they might even attack us. Prepare your men. Yes, sir. Then, waving his hat in his hand, he declares... Gentlemen, we're gonna capture this village in one piece. Cross the river, take the women and children hostage. When the warriors return, they won't touch us. We caught him napping! Let's go get them, boys. Finish this up and head for home. To the river! More after these messages. And we return to the story of George Armstrong Custer, who was born on this day in history in 1839. Let's return to the final installment of this fascinating story. We caught him napping! Let's go get him, boys. Finish this up and head for home. To the river! As they gallop into the Sioux camp, Custer makes a tactical decision and splits his cavalry into four parts. Nine hundred against uh, ninety men down there were just overwhelming odds. 
Custer's cavalry arrive, Indians come pouring out of the village, and the outnumbered troopers begin a panicked retreat. The soldiers were not prepared. They were tired, they'd ridden all night long. They were fighting these Indians and, and they got they got war paint on and they look mean, you're scared of them. You're not gonna act like normal. They were absolutely scared of, of, of the tribes coming in. Of course the Indians took, took advantage of that. They could see warriors flitting around the woods. The sounds were incredible. The whistles, the screams, the, the firing of the guns, particularly bad with the arrows that were coming down through the trees. It was terrifying. It was over 90 degrees, it was hot, you had gunpowder in the air, you had people screaming, people crying, women on the battlefield that grabbing their tongue, uh, singing songs, singing praise songs. conventional warfare training is worthless against the Great Plains Indians. The Indians are moving up the gullies. They're not exposing themselves. They're not foolish enough to ride their horses around the soldiers uh, in Hollywood fashion. And then there was a rush. And Custer's last stand is over. Probably the whole battle from the time first Custer was engaged until the last man was killed did not uh, consume an entire hour. When the smoke from the battlefield lifts, every soldier under Custer's command is lost, all 225 men. The Indians lost only 60 braves. Custer's body is found at the crest of a flat-topped hill. His brother Tom lie beside him. His other brother Boston and nephew Audie along with his brother-in-law, Lieutenant Calhoun, lie nearby. News of the Battle of the Little Bighorn came like a thunderstorm out of the West, and it rained on the biggest parade of the century. In Philadelphia, all of the best and brightest of the United States, including all the top brass of the United States Army, had gathered for the centennial celebration of the United States of America. The Republic was 100 years old. But now came the news from the plains that Custer and the 7th Cavalry had been wiped out by the Sioux in Montana. Sherman and Sheridan responded as one. It's a lie. It couldn't possibly be true. But nevertheless, on July 4th, 1876, the news broke. Indeed, it was true. Custer was dead. The 7th Cavalry shattered. The Sioux were triumphant on the northern plains. An angry nation demanded answers. This was a thunderbolt. The West was won. How could this happen? It's like uh, the sinking of the unsinkable Titanic. You know, it just doesn't compute. So who was at fault? 
Custer was reckless according to the person who is doing the evaluating. Custer's personality, in fact, uh, is a product more of the person who's looking at him than it is Custer himself because who he was depends on who you are. And if you're inclined to see recklessness in uh, his actions, you will consider him to be reckless. If you are one of the Custer admirers, you will see in his every decision uh, uh, the marks of a military genius. It's funny that we have to blame someone. We can't, we can't say that the army lost that fight because the Indians won. But the greatest Indian victory in the history of the West stirred a vengeance that the Plains Indians would regret to this very day. For Sitting Bull, who took no active part in the fight, gave his braves one simple command. Sitting Bull warned the people that when they die in camp, you are instructed not to take anything from them, nothing, part of war is that you take their guns, you take their ammo, you take their clothing, you, these become trophies, booty of war, and, and all, all armies have done it. And so it was standard practice. But he warned the people, do not take anything from these soldiers when they die in our camp, or great misery will befall our people. People did not listen to what Sitting Bull had told them, and they took everything they could. And after that, we know that they chased us to the four corners of this country and to Canada as well. And great ministry has befallen our people ever since, even to this day. By the fall of that year, virtually all the Sioux and Cheyenne who fought in the battle were forced back onto the reservation. A year later, Crazy Horse turned himself in and was killed in a scuffle with guards. Sitting Bull escaped to Canada, but later returned to the United States. He had a part in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, reenacting the Battle of Little Bighorn. He died a reservation Indian. And great job as always on that. And that's Greg Hengler doing the writing and the producing on that piece. The battle was over in an hour. 225 men killed. The 7th Cavalry wiped out. And George Custer didn't just lose his life. His brother did. Talk about having some skin in the game. The Indians lost only 60. We love bringing you these in this days in histories because... As David McCullough reminds us in a great Hillsdale speech, nothing had to happen the way it happened. And we always look back and judge, and we can't. And too often, the way history is taught today, well, it's just not contextualized. There's agendas, and that's what we try to do here in this, in, on this show each and every day, is tell you the story straight up. And again, as always, our This Days in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses. The Constitution 101 course being the best. I went to a great law school and I can promise you, I learned little of what I learned sitting in on that Dr. Larry Orrin course at Hillsdale. 
It's that good. Again, it's free. And history, well, it should come alive like this. It's not a bunch of dead old guys. They were alive. They didn't know it was going to happen. And when we're listening, we have to pretend we didn't either. Custer's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce them up and put them on the airwaves. Some of our very best pieces have come from you. The American people have, well, you all have great stories to tell and beautiful voices from all over this great country. It's been multiple decades since a nine-year-old kid shared his Coca-Cola with Pittsburgh Steelers star Mean Joe Green in one of the most famous commercials in American history. Most of us have seen that commercial many times, but the story behind the ad is just as great. Here's Greg Hengler. The man known as Mean Joe Green was one of the most feared defenders in NFL history. In 13 seasons as defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the 6'4", 275-pound Joe Green was a 10-time Pro Bowler and a 2-time Defensive Player of the Year. He became an NFL icon and a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then there's that name. Here's teammates Franco Harris and Andy Russell. Is there a better name than Mean Joe Green? I mean, that name just flows. And I ask kids about that, and I say, Mean? And they say, Joe Green. He asked me one time, he said, Andy, why do they call me Mean? And I said, because you're mean. (laughs) Here's Steelers chairman Dan Rooney. We're playing in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has the ball. And if they can make a first time, the game's over. They made it. They made the first time. And he went up, took the football, and threw it in the stands. And I said to my father, this guy's special. If he's that intense, that he's going to do something like that, we got a guy that we want. Some people ask that question, what does Joe really mean? Yeah, that was the perfect name for him. He hated to lose. That was part of his demeanor. He's here to win. He's here to beat that guy across from him. And he's not going to be nice about it. 
But inside the man who was the centerpiece of the steel curtain defense that led the Pittsburgh Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in six years was something unseen by the public eye. Here's Joe Green giving us a peek. When I was a senior in high school, my class voted me to be class president. And I declined. I think about that a lot. And it was basically because I was shy and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class or the student body. (laughs) But in 1979, Green's rugged public persona and life changed dramatically after being selected for a television commercial by Madison Avenue creative wizard Penny Hockey. We were asked to do an exploratory, that is to take the Coca-Cola brand and see where else it could go in its communications. The guys were sitting there saying, okay, well, who could we get? Well, we could get Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green. And I said, wait, there's a guy called Mean Joe Green? Is he mean? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's perfect. We want the most intimidating human being we can find. And boy, did we get it. We wrote about 10 different storylines, and the very first one that we came up with was, let's take kind of a pathetic little kid who's just awestruck over some kind of superstar football hero. Uh, The kid has nothing to offer except he has the Coca-Cola. He gives the superstar the Coca-Cola, the superstar drinks it, shazam, he's a changed person. In the commercial, Mean Joe would have a memorable encounter with a trembling nine-year-old named Tommy Okan. My mom and my dad were both in television. As to our future weather, well, we expect the rain to... My mom was on-air talent. My dad was a director and a producer. I had started doing commercials probably when I was around five or so. So by the time we did the co-commercial, I had probably done about 30 or 40 commercials up to that point. Let's go. Keep it on top. I think you fumbled. (laughs) And the first day when we shot the commercial, there was a lot of downtime because they were doing a lot of work to the set. And uh, because of that, there wasn't a lot to do. So, of course, I had brought a football and went over to Joe and asked if he'd throw a football around. And he said, sure. He developed a sweet little relationship with Tommy and made Tommy much more comfortable. Okay. Now, giving the line, Joe. Okay. Got They were trying to get him to drink the whole Coke. And they had him maybe do that a couple of times and just said they were gonna, the guy was gonna blow up after a while. He went through an awful lot of soda. And you know the the legend, of course, that he drank 18, 16 ounce bottles, equivalent to two and a quarter gallons. (laughs) Needless to say, when I started to shoot, first thing out of my mouth was a big burp. Talk about absolutely perfect timing. Super Bowl programs. Super Bowl souvenirs. Super Bowl pennants. The commercial ran on the Super Bowl, and then they won. And the rest is history. What could be better? Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. Want my Coke? It's okay. 
okay, you can have it. Okay. A coke and a smile makes me feel good. Makes me feel nice. Be around. That's the way it should be. I'd like to see the whole world smiling with me. Coca-Cola has life. Have a glass. And thanks, Mean Joe. Joe Green was probably the first black male that was cast in a, for a national brand. It was the fact that he was black and the little boy was white. It was a shock at that time, and people experienced it and really resonated to it. I don't know where that jersey went. I don't know if Joe took it back or who got it. I do know that that Christmas I got a package, and uh, it was a signed... Mean Joe Green jersey that I uh, still have to this day. But Tommy was not the only child whose life would be positively influenced by Joe Green. Here's Joe's wife, Agnes. I think uh, it changed our lives a lot. It changed Joe's personality a lot. Because so many kids were looking up to him, he decided he really wanted to be a role model for the kids. appeared with the Muppets and probably Elmo and was on children's TV shows. Well, you know, I used to be afraid of my own shadow. And then everybody told me that was silly. What are you afraid of? Well, lots of things. Like the whole offensive line of the Rams jumping on me. Yeah? We'd be walking around and little old ladies that I know didn't know anything about football would come up to Joe and talk to him. Listen, you're not a mean guy. He's just a big old teddy bear. Doing the Coca-Cola spot did change the image. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It made me uh, more approachable. To this day, I'm still rather amazed. I mean, it's the commercial that will not die. Although he was known to the world as Mean Joe, he is known to his grandkids as Papa Joe. Yeah. When we went to uh, North Texas and you saw me interacting with the people and you were surprised. A little bit. Why? <laughs> um, I guess just because we know you as grandpa and then all these people are trying to talk to you and coming yeah. up to you. So okay. it's a little new. Yeah, these two, they had the same reaction. You didn't know. Like, whoa. The father of three and grandfather of seven credits the Coke ad with keeping him in the spotlight since his retirement in 1981. My public life, my football life, has been kept alive by the commercial. A few people might know me as Mean Joe, but a lot of them know me as the Coca-Cola guy. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg. The commercial that won't die. And it's so interesting that mean Joe Green became, for so many young people, sweet Joe Green, always to his kids and grandkids, Papa Joe. And what a terrific story about life. And in the end, the civilizing effect of kids on adults. 
Mean Joe Green's story, the Coca-Cola commercial story that the world fell in love with, here on Our American Stories. And to get all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories each week. Again, Mean Joe Green's story here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories. And we love to bring you the story of a song. We've done Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, Light My Fire and Riders on the Storm by The Doors, There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney, Gimme Shelter by The Rolling Stones, and many others that you can hear at ouramericannetwork.org. And just click the button, Story of a Song, and you can listen to all of them. And now it's time for the story of a song that we all know, Aretha Franklin's Respect. Here's Jesse. Written by Otis Redding in 1965, it became Aretha Franklin's signature song and a number one hit by June of 67. It brought her two Grammy Awards in 1968 and quickly became the soundtrack for feminism and civil rights around the world. When I recorded it, uh, it was pretty much a male-female thing and, and more in a general sense from person to person. Uh, I'm going to give you respect, and I'd like to have that respect back, or I expect respect to be given back. The original version was from a man's point of view. What you want, one of you got it. And what you need, baby, you got it. All I'm asking for a respect when I After Otis Redding wrote the song for Speedo Sims, he decided to rewrite the lyrics and speed up the rhythm, recording it himself for his third album. Otis realized that he had a hit, and so did producer Jerry Wexler, who brought it to Aretha Franklin. Well, I heard Mr. Redding's version of it. I just loved it, and uh, I decided that I wanted to record it. And my sister Carolyn and I got together. I was living in a small apartment uh, on the west side of Detroit, and... um, piano by the window, watching the cars go by, and uh, we came up with that infamous line, the socket to me line. It was a cliche of the day. Actually, we didn't just come up with it. It, was, it really was cliche. The song was recorded on February 14th of 1967 in New York City's Atlantic Studios with Aretha behind the piano while using the Muscle Shoals rhythm section as the band. Franklin added lyrics where she demands her propers when she gets home. This is most likely the first reference of the term props in modern hip-hop terminology. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. R-E-S-B-C-T. Burn 
And that line there... TCB. It's an abbreviation commonly used in the 60s and 70s, meaning taking care of business. It's often misquoted as take out TCP or something similar because most music sheets include this incorrect line, possibly because people who transcribed Franklin's words for music sheets weren't familiar with the hip vernacular of the late 1960s. TCB was not present in Redding's original song, but were included in some of his later performances. At the Monterey Pop Festival, the same year Aretha Franklin's cover was released, Otis played the song live, saying that Aretha had taken it. This is another one of mine. Song we like to do for everybody. Love crowd. This now song is a song that a girl took away from me. Good friend of mine. <laughs> This girl, she just took this song, but I'm still going to do it anyway. <laughs> Tom Dowd was the engineer for the Aretha Franklin recording session. He worked for Atlantic Records, who had an arrangement with Stax, where Otis Redding recorded. Dowd worked with Redding, which led to Aretha's cover. I mean, he was under the influence of Sam Cooke and a lot of traditional blues artists and gospel blues artists. But Otis had this song, Respect, which was his expression of hard-working then Southern black man <clears throat> coming home after a week at work and saying, we're going to dance and I don't want to hear nothing about this and that and they didn't mind those pin curls and telling me you don't feel well and this. we're going to dance and talk, we're going to party, give me my dude, give me my respect. That was, that was the significance of Otis' song. And it was a male macho work with me, Annie, let's dance tonight song, okay? Um... Three, four years later, as we're doing the Aretha album, Aretha comes up with her version of the same song. But we're talking a transition period of three years, and where all of a sudden, Aretha being such a powerful... Now, Otis was powerful as a man. Aretha was powerful as a woman. But times were changing. And here is an embryo women's lib black women's lib song where here comes this chick on strong instead of being the shrinking violet in the will no don't hit me no more just come on give me my propers when i get home R-E-S-P. and she tears the pants off the song it was the same song it was a hit both times it just depended which world you were living in which one you liked but damn it was a hot song while Otis Redding's version peaked at number four for just one day in October of 1965, Aretha's version was number one for two weeks in June of 1967. Respect became an international hit, reaching number 10 in the UK, helping transform Franklin from a domestic star into an international sensation. This is Our American Stories. To hear more, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org.
She saw both her lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the air Jesus, take the This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Carrie Underwood's rendition of Jesus Take the Wheel. I know you're wondering why are you calling it a rendition. Well, like, it isn't often the case, and more often the case than not in country music. Sometimes in rock and roll, but often in country music. Someone else writes these songs. And we love to tell the story behind the story of songs anyway here on Our American Stories. We love music. We spend a lot of time on it. Because, well, we all love music. And some of the stories we've done behind the story of a song, Light My Fire, where Ray Manzarek walks us through how that song got made. It's just terrific. Give Me Shelter. You can't believe what brought that song together and made it stick. And another brick in the wall, you hear from Roger Waters himself explaining how that song came together. And then my personal favorite, Kenny Chesney's There Goes My Life, Wendell Mobley, who wrote the song, tells the story about how that song came to be. We hear the songwriter sing it, and then ultimately, of course, we hear Kenny Chesney's take. And in this particular case, it wasn't Carrie who wrote this. And again, Carrie Underwood, as you all know, was a big star out of American Idol in 2005, and she's gone on to just do such amazing and extraordinary work in every venue, including Broadway Live, which he did on television. She did The Sound of Music, and it was unbelievable. Uh, I think Julie Andrews was like, oh my goodness, that girl can do it. And it was live, which is no duck walk. So this song, Jesus Take the Wheel, was written by a guy named Brett James. And here he is talking about becoming a songwriter, his first guitar, and writing his first song. The very beginning for me started in Waco, Texas. I was a student at Baylor University. Any, any Baylor, I sit there. And uh, I'd grown up singing in church and, and being around music. I came from a really musical family, but I didn't play an instrument. I didn't, never thought about writing songs. I'm from Oklahoma, as is Ryan and Randy Grimmett and the Okies out there. Um, and growing up in Oklahoma, probably like where a lot of you guys are from, you know, becoming a songwriter is not on the list of professions that they give you when you enter high school. And so I didn't know my job existed, and so I didn't know that I could, I could go after it. Um, when I was 19, I asked for a, a guitar for Christmas. My mom bought me an $80 pawn shop guitar. It was a, called a Lincoln. It was a, nobody's probably ever heard, I'd never heard of a Lincoln. The action was about an inch and a half off the strings. I do remember that. <laughs> I then bought immediately uh, John Cougar Mellencamp's Scarecrow songbook because I already knew the album. And I thought, well, I can, most of these songs have three chords in them. I can probably learn these. So that's how I started learning guitar. And for me, the next step in the process was very simple. Uh, as soon as I learned those three chords, for whatever reason, it seemed natural for me to write a song. Um, and that wasn't something I even thought about or planned on. It just, I know these three chords. Why don't I write something that, that 
some girl down the street might like. And uh, so that's how it, that was kind of the beginning for me. And that's how it starts off for so many musicians. Self-taught, we learned this about Irving Berlin, taught himself everything from scratch. Brett talks about when he was a failed recording artist, the time he was, and decided to finally just let go. And it was then that he found eventual success. Sometimes something just pops into your head and, and don't ever, for me, it's like, don't ever count it out, you know? And, and no, no matter how simple you think it might be, sometimes simplicity wins the day. Quick lesson for me might to be, you know, sometimes when you let it go, sometimes when you're not pushing so hard, that's when, that's when kind of God just takes over. I, 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 my story is I was in Nashville real quickly. Uh, I got offered a record deal. My first trip to Nashville with Arista was on Arista for seven years. Seven years later, all that went away. I was a failed recording artist, and I went back to medical school. And I started back to medical school on September 1st, and I was 30 years old and going to go be a doctor. But I was still writing songs. Um, I'd given up my dream of being a songwriter, of being a, you know, I just, that's okay. That, I, I, get, I had a great shot, and, and it wasn't going to work out for me. Uh, September 1st, I started med school. September 4th, Faith Hill co one of my songs on the Breathe album. I ended, okay. up, ended up with 33 more cuts in that nine months while I was going to med school every day. And the reason was because I kind of let go. I'd been in Nashville trying to push and trying to force and trying to fit my, what I did into their square hole, you know, or my round songs into their square hole. And, you know, when I went back to med school, I said, screw it. I got a job. You know, I'm going to be a doctor. I can write whatever the heck I want, and I'm going I'm to write stuff I like. And I sort of let go. And that freedom that he found leaving his dream got him his dream. Go figure. And that happens a lot, too. Here, Brett James talks about writing the song we've been talking about, Jesus Take the Wheel, followed by his performance at an ASCAP songwriter showcase of the first verse and the chorus. You got a blank sheet of paper looking at you, and what are we going to put on it? And, uh... and, you know, so we kind of started tossing around some thoughts, and Gordy said, you know, I got, this, I got one idea for title it's called when jesus takes the wheel and i immediately laughed i thought well that's about the silliest thing i ever heard and hillary kind of chuckled and we kind of tried to get our heads around that for a minute and moved on to something else what do you think well let's, let's talk about some <laughs> other titles that one i'm not sure about that one but fortunately uh 10 or 15 minutes later we came back to uh, when jesus takes the wheel and uh, we wrote a little song about a girl driving to Cincinnati, and uh, ended up being called Jesus Take the Wheel. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve. Going home to see her mama and her daddy with her baby in the backseat. Fifty miles to go when she was running low on faith and gasoline. It'd been a long, hard year. She had a lot on her mind and she didn't pay attention She was going way too fast Before she knew what she was spinning on a thin black sheet of glass She saw both their lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the air Jesus, take the wheel Take it from my head Cause I can't do this on my own I'm letting go So give me one more chance And save me from this road I'm on 
Jesus, take the wheel. And that's the first verse in chorus. And my sister's a professional songwriter, and she's always sent me snippets or lines that she wished she'd written. And the one on this one was 50 miles to go. She was running low on faith and gasoline. And those are little descriptors of that character and the thing that person's going through. It wasn't just that she hit a patch of ice. Her life had hit a patch of ice. And that's why she was asking Jesus to take the wheel. Now, you also heard Brett singing, and you could hear clearly why maybe Brett didn't make it as the singer-songwriter. But his God-given talents were in the writing, and my goodness, God-given talents of Carrie Underwood as a singer come to meet these two talents, and here is Carrie Underwood's take on this great song. When she made it to the shoulder and the car came to a stop She cried when she saw that baby in the backseat sleeping like a rock for the first time in a long time She bowed her head to pray She said, I'm sorry for the way I've been living my life I know I've got to change So from now on tonight Jesus, take the wheel This is Our American Stories, Brett James, his story, and the story of how Jesus Take the Wheel came to be, and Carrie Underwood takes us away. return to Our American Stories, and our next one is about a writer, a writer you may know, and you may have even read back in high school or college, if you were lucky enough, Louisa May Alcott, and she's the writer of Little Woman. The book was her most popular, and it's been adapted twice as a silent film and four times with sound. It's also been made into six television shows. Here's Faith with Louisa May's story. In the mid-19th century, few people felt that a woman could be unmarried 
and still be happy and successful. Even live a fulfilled life. Author Louisa May Alcott was what people would have called an old maid. Yet her life was filled with many successes and experiences, including her most successful book, Little Women, which she wrote in 1868 and 1869 in two separate volumes. After the success of the first volume, her publisher asked her to write the second. But we often read them as one. The book is a semi-autobiographical account of her childhood with her three sisters. It follows the life of the four March girls, Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy, who live with their mother, Marmee. While their father is serving off as a pastor miles away from home involved in the American Civil War, Alcott identified with Joe, the stubborn, willful, fiery-tempered, but charmingly creative second eldest daughter. I was born with a boy's nature and have fought my fight with a boy's spirit and a boy's wrath. Never liked girls or knew many, except my sisters. The book is the girl's journey from childhood to womanhood and all that lies therein. It's a romantic child's fiction and a sentimental novel. Literary historian Sarah Elbert argues that within Little Women, we find the first representation of the all-American girl and her multiple aspects displayed in the differing March sisters. While Little Women was the most successful of Louisa May Alcott's writings, it was actually the book that she never wanted to write. Niles wants a girl's story. Lively, simple books are very much needed for girls. I said I'd try. Here's Susan Cheever, writer of Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography, talking about how Alcott came to write Little Women. It was the book that absolutely changed her life. It made her rich. It made her well-known after years and years of struggle. Uh, But she didn't want to write it. It was the last thing she wanted to do. She felt it went against all of her creative impulses. She had said to her editor, I'll think about it, and stalled and stalled and stalled. She didn't want to do it at all. And it, she ended up doing it, as we'll see, through a series of unfortunate accidents. And I think that often great things happen to us through a series of what seem to be unfortunate accidents. Uh, Louisa May Alcott was 36 years old when she wrote Little Women in 1868. She was the second of four daughters um, of an extraordinary family who lived in and around Boston. She was the daughter of Abba Alcott, who was an aristocrat who had married Bronson Alcott very late in life. He was one of these characters. He wore a cape and a big hat, and he carried a cane, and he had long blonde hair. Uh, But he had a lot of trouble making a living. Anyway, she was the daughter of Bronson Alcott, and Bronson Alcott, I believe, was an educational genius. He really was the first person in this country to start progressive education. And he did it because he believed, and he had no education, so he pulled this out of the sky. He believed that children were angels who came from heaven, as Wordsworth had written, trailing clouds of glory. Now, most people in the 1840s believed that children were vipers, who had to be forcefully civilized before they could join us, you know, big people. Bronson believed the opposite. He believed that adults could learn from children. He gave Louisa one great thing, which was the community in which she grew up. His friends were Emerson and Thoreau and Hawthorne and all kinds of people like that. So as a girl, she was taught by Thoreau. She used Emerson's library right away. 
And she grew up in this extraordinary progressive intellectual community as the daughter of a man who was very respected in that community. Um, Bronson was fascinated by children, just fascinated. He wasn't just an educator, he was a kind of student of children. But she drove him a little bit crazy, and she was definitely the family rebel, and there was a lot of disappointment in in her, both from her father and her mother. Now, Bronson, this brilliant educator and this friend of the brilliant transcendentalist, had one, he had two big problems. One was he couldn't hang on to money, and the other was that he couldn't write. He was one of the world's worst writers. Uh, One critic said that reading Bronson Alcott was like watching a train go by with 15 boxcars and one passenger. Louisa decided that she had to make money for the family and that she would do it by writing. Louisa did everything she could get paid for. She was a seamstress, she was a teacher, she was a governess, she was a companion. So she decided to take this essay she had written to, to the great editor of of the time, James T. Fields. And she knew James T. Fields through her father. James T. Fields was Hawthorne's editor. James T. Fields was De Quincey's editor. James T. Fields was the man, right? So she takes her essay and she walks across Boston. They're living on Pinckney Street. And uh, here's what happens. She passed the Boston Common and turned into the bustling center of downtown. There, the spire of the Old South Church presided like a disapproving Puritan dowager over the teeming business of the new Boston. There was the bookshop next to Mrs. Abner's coffee house, where Fields took authors and colleagues for coffee and hot buns. There was the gorgeous palace of the music hall, where Louisa had recently gone to hear Theodore Parker demand equality for women. Now Louisa headed for the second floor of the old corner bookshop, where Fields had his office behind a green curtain that separated him from his young assistant Thomas Niles and the piles of manuscripts he had yet to read. She handed him the manuscript, her first and last memoir essay, How I Went Out to Service. He motioned her to sit and began to read it. She could hear the noise of Thomas Niles' pen scratching and the chatter in the bookstore downstairs. Finally, the great James T. Fields looked up at her and delivered the verdict she would remember for a long time. Stick to your teaching, Miss Alcott. You can't write. That was not a good moment. Um, Yet, I think it was the moment at which Louisa May Alcott became a writer. And I think that if you want to be a writer, you take criticism in and you're hurt, of course, and devastated, of course, But you almost immediately turn it around and go, well, I'll show them. And it's clearly what happened with Louisa Alcott and James T. Fields. James T. Fields was trying to be nice. He tried to help her in her teaching career. He loaned her $40 to help her start a school with her sister. But she took that in in a very interesting way. However... Louisa's career did not turn around at that point, but she decided that she would show James T. Fields and the rest of the world by writing a big, serious novel, a novel that would please her friend Emerson, a novel that would impress her father, a novel which she called Moods. And probably you haven't read it. Maybe you haven't even heard of it. I, I don't think it's such a successful novel, and neither did anybody else. Which was hard for her, because she loved that novel. Anyway, she got one review which was particularly painful in the North American Review uh, from a guy who said, um, The two most striking facts with regard to moods are the author's ignorance of human nature and her self-confidence in spite of that ignorance. 
So that wasn't good, and her writing career was not looking good. And then the, their entire lives came to a halt with the beginning of the Civil War. And when we come back, more of this extraordinary story of perseverance, and my goodness, so much more. The story of Louisa May Alcott continues here on Our American Stories. story of Louisa May Alcott, the writer of Little Woman. Author Susan Cheever has been telling us her story, and Susan Cheever wrote the book Louisa May Alcott, a personal biography. We left off with Alcott's writing career not seeming very promising, but it all came to a stop when the Civil War began. And Louisa and everyone in Concord and everyone in Cambridge um, took it very hard. It, 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 of course, was a nightmare. Nobody thought it was going to happen. Louisa didn't know what to do. She was very involved with abolition. Concord had been a stop on the Underground Railroad. She had seen the whole thing. So she ended up enlisting as a Civil War nurse. And it was she was one of the first female nurses in this country. It, it was thought that nurses had to be men because they had to handle naked bodies, etc., 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 But a woman named Dorothy Dix had started, had convinced the War Department to start a corps of female nurses as long as they were plain, unmarried, and over 30. Louisa fit the bill. So she went down to Washington, D.C. to work in the Union Hotel Hospital. It had been a hotel. It was just barely remodeled into a hospital. And oddly enough, or amazingly enough, the second day she got there was the day that in Fredericksburg, Virginia... A few miles south, General Ambrose Burnside ordered 14 suicidal attacks of the Union Army against the entrenched Confederate Army. Here are historians Chris Mikowski and Donald Fance describing that fateful day. The majority of federal troops at this point are not very optimistic about their chances. They recognize how strong that position is the Confederates have atop Marine's Heights. Union troops have to charge across several hundred yards of open ground just to reach the Confederate position. Once there, they're going to encounter Confederates who were posted very strongly in massed ranks behind a stone wall. If you survived all that, then you had the Confederate artillery, which was on the high ground behind the stone wall. Those guns were able to fire down over the heads of their own men and scour the ground in front of them. So any way you look at it, it was a killing ground. The day at Fredericksburg was one of the worst battles of the war. The ground was carpeted with the Union dead. And the next morning, Louisa May Alcott looked out the window of the Union Hotel Hospital and she saw 
carts as far as she could see. It looked to her like farmers coming to market, but of course it was carts filled with the dead and wounded men from Fredericksburg coming to her hospital. But she loved it. She was great at being a nurse. She knew how to talk to the men. She knew how to dig in. She learned how to wash wounds. She worked with the surgeons. She took the job of being up all night, of being the night nurse. She told them stories from Dickens. She wrote letters home when they were alive, and then when the men died, she wrote that very sad letter home saying that the man had died. She just, everything that she hated and that had troubled her fell away. There was no phoniness. There was no, you know, shame about being poor. It was life and death, and she knew what to do when the stakes were that high, and it was an extraordinary experience for her. And her letters home from the hospital are written in a completely different way than she had ever written before. It was in the Union Hotel Hospital that she found her voice. However, at the Union Hotel, she also fell sick with a lung infection, which in those days they gave you medicine that had mercury in it. So this resulted in her growing sicker and sicker until her father had to come and get her and take her back to Concord. On the brink of death, her and her father put together the book Hospital Sketches, which in the end was the compilation of her letters home and the letters written to the families whose soldiers had fallen. During that time, she was not sure she would live herself. Louisa May Alcott, through the help and care of her family, overcame her illness. And being the hard worker that she was, she didn't wait long before trying to find work again. As she got better, she decided again that it was time to take her next step as a writer. So she went to Thomas Niles, who was her editor. He had been James T. Fields' assistant. And she said to him, you know, what, what should my next book be? And he said, well, he said, the only book I could really sell that you might write would be a book for young women. And she was horrified. She was insulted. She was like, do they ask Emerson to write a book for young women? I don't think so, right? What is this? I thought I was a serious writer. You know, all these years she had worked to be a serious writer. She had written all these stories under a pseudonym for Frank Leslie. She had written Moods. She had written hospital sketches, and they were still sort of trivializing her, she thought. But what happened was uh, Thomas Niles was an inspired bully. So he wrote Bronson Alcott a letter saying, um, you know, I'm a big fan of your writing, and I would love it if Louisa wrote this book for young women, and if she did, I think we could publish your next book as well. So that was a brilliant stroke. Bronson started in on Louisa, trying to get her to come home and write this book for young women. And eventually he got her. Um, she came home in January of, or went back to Concord. She had, she'd gone to Boston. She'd gotten herself a job. She was having a good time. She wasn't going to write the book for young women. But he got her back to Concord in January of 1868 for the purpose of writing this book for young women, which she didn't want to write. And so she stalled and stalled and stalled. She did everything but write the book for young women. January went by, February, March, April, May. Um, finally, in May, she sat down just thinking, oh, you know, I might as well try it. She was totally discouraged about it. She thought she had written a little bit about four sisters who she called the pathetic family. So she just thought, well, I'll just write what happened, you know, which is, of course, not what she did. But that's how it felt to her. 
And, you know, within about three weeks, she had finished the first part of Little Women. She didn't like it very much. Thomas Niles didn't think it was too great either. Um, Thomas Niles had a niece who got hold of the manuscript and was up all night. But it's the minute, almost the minute, Thomas Niles published the first part of Little Women in November, uh, the outpouring of letters and admiration was huge. And by Christmas, Louisa May Alcott was one of the best-known writers in the world and one of the wealthiest. So it was really a kind of amazing overnight success uh, because of what happened with, with Little Women, that which she didn't want to write. So after the huge success of Little Women, a letter to James T. Fields. I remember he had lent her money. Dear Mr. Fields, once upon a time you lent me $40, kindly saying that I might return them when I had made a pot of gold. As the miracle has been unexpectedly wrought, I wish to fulfill my part of the bargain and herewith repay my debt with many thanks. Very truly yours, L.M. Alcott. So um, she got her own back. The same man who told her to stick to her teaching, Miss Alcott, you can't write. She got to prove wrong. Little Women wasn't necessarily the book she wanted to write. But in the end, what was its impact on others? And, ultimately, on herself. She wrote the first part, she turned it in, he didn't like it much, he published it, the outpouring was huge. And then he said to her, okay, write the second part. And then they both realized that they had a tiger by the tail. And then, God bless him, he said to her, I can give you a flat fee or you can take a percentage, but if I were you, I would take the percentage. So she did. Neither of them realized what she had done. It's sort of fascinating. And I don't think that's that unusual, I have to say. I think writers often don't know when they've done their best work. The beauty and intrigue of this book is the perspective that Alcott brings. She wrote reflectively on her own life. In one chapter in particular, we find Jo at the age of 25, feeling old and like she has nothing to show for it. She's been focused on her career rather than finding a husband. And in this moment, the narrator detours from the story. To the girl in the 19th century, growing up and not finding a husband could feel like the end of the world. Little women became a memoir of sorts. So although Alcott was quite happy and successful, she still had reflections from her spinsterhood. It's interesting to contrast her life with the pity she feels for old maids in the following passage. Quote, At 25, girls begin to talk about being old maids, but secretly resolve that they never will be. At 30, they say nothing about it, but quietly accept the fact, and, if sensible, console themselves by remembering that they have 20 more useful happy years in which they may be learning to grow old gracefully. Don't laugh at the spinsters, dear girls, for often very tender, tragic romances are hidden away in the hearts that beat so quietly under the sober gowns, and many silent sacrifices of youth, health, ambition, love itself, make the faded faces beautiful in God's sight. Even the sad, sour sisters should be kindly dealt with, because they have missed the sweetest part of life, if for no other reason. And looking at them with compassion, not contempt, girls in their bloom should remember that they too may miss the blossom time. That rosy cheeks don't last forever. That silver threads will come in that bonny brown hair. And that by and by, 
kindness and respect will be as sweet as love and admiration now. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith. And what a story it is, Louisa May Alcott's story. And you can hear so much of what we do on the arts and literature in particular. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We've done stories about Melville, about Hemingway, Fitzgerald, with a reading from The Great Gatsby. Louisa May Alcott's story, in a sense, the story of the 19th century and the beginning of the women's movement in a very real and smart and bold way. All of that here on Our American Stories.